2: In regards to issues of animal rights and animal welfare, animal shelters are states of exception because the normal rules that govern how humans are supposed to engage with companion animals are suspended. People at home typically don't keep their cats and dogs in cages so small that they can just turn around. If we heard about people who killed their dog or their cat at home because they just didn't want that cat anymore or dog or they were moving away and they had no place for the dog or cat to go, so they just killed them. People found out about that on social media today. They would be howling about what an injustice that is, both as a moral issue and they'd probably try to mobilize, you know, a legal case for cruelty as well. But what's immoral or unlawful outside of shelters is considered moral and lawful inside of shelters, so those rules about law and morality that we have in the population as a whole are suspended in a state of exception.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Katja Gunther. Professor Gunther's research focuses on gender, social movements, human-animal relationships, and the state. Her current research centers on how practices of animal control and sheltering reproduce social inequalities of race, class, gender, species, and breed, and how shelter volunteers and rescuers, who are almost all women, resist and participate in the reproduction of these inequalities. Her first book, Making Their Place Feminism After Socialism in East Germany, examines how gender and opportunities for feminist resistance vary across places and scales of governance. She has also written extensively on her research on secular activism, particularly within the new atheist movement. She is co-editor with Marta Maria Maldonado of a special issue of Feminist Formations on critical feminist exits or the relocation of critical feminist scholars across departments, institutions, and disciplines as an outcome of discrimination, bullying, harassment, and or hostile work environments. Her scholarly work has been published in journals such as Ethnic and Racial Studies, Gender & Society, Mobilization: Politics and Gender, Signs: Social Problems, Sociological Forum, and Women's Studies International Forum, among others. Professor Gunther's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2020's The Lives and Deaths of Shelter Animals, published by Stanford University Press. Monster is an adult pitbull muscular, and gray, who's impounded in a large animal shelter in Los Angeles. Like many other dogs at the shelter, Monster is associated with marginalized humans and assumed to embody certain behaviors because of his breed. And like approximately one million shelter animals each year, Monster will be killed. The lives and deaths of shelter animals takes us inside one of the country's highest intake animal shelters. Katya M. Gunther witnesses the dramatic variance in the narratives assigned different animals, including monster, which dictate their chances for survival. She argues that these inequalities are powerfully linked to human ideas about race, class, gender, ability, and species. Gunther deftly explores internal hierarchies, breed discrimination, and importantly, instances of resistance and agency. Welcome, Professor Gunther, and thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, the focus of your work, and also how you came to learn about public animal shelters and write this
2: book. Absolutely. So I am currently a faculty member in the discipline of gender and sexuality studies, but my PhD is in sociology. And like a lot of scholars who work in gender and sexuality studies, I engage in interdisciplinary scholarship. So I tend to look at things from the perspectives of multiple academic disciplines. Most of my previous work has focused specifically on issues related to social movements and resistance and specifically on issues related to gender and social movements. I wrote a previous book called Making Their Place that looked at feminist activism in Eastern Germany after the end of socialism there. And I've also done a whole lot of research on the new atheist movement and the reproduction of gender inequality in that movement. But I ended up doing a project focused on an animal shelter that in the book I call the Pacific Animal Welfare Center, or PAW as the acronym. Sort of accidentally, and I think this happens a fair amount, especially to people like me who are doing ethnographic research where we find ourselves in a particular social setting and just realize it's too interesting not to make the focus of research. I first started volunteering at PAW in the winter of 2012. It was really a time for me of a lot of different kinds of intellectual and professional and personal transitions. But what sort of spurred me to actually enter into that site for the first time was that a dog who I loved very much, who'd been with me throughout graduate school and then the experience of getting tenure and writing my first book, she died a couple of days after Christmas in, in 2011. So my partner and I went to PAW, which is not too far from where I live, in early January in the hopes of finding a dog to adopt. At that point, I'd been living in Southern California, I guess for about six years, but I had not really spent a lot of time visiting animal shelters in that time. And I'd heard from people that a lot of the animal shelters in Los Angeles and the areas around Los Angeles were in very poor condition and often kind of mismanaged as well. So I had some awareness that animal shelters are not great places for dogs to be in a lot of cases in Southern California, but I hadn't actually seen it myself. And without wanting to sound totally naive, when I went to PAW for the first time, I was genuinely horrified. The kennels for the cats and the dogs were so small. It was so dirty. It was so run down. There was so much noise. It smelled so awful. Trying to get help from the staff to answer questions about the animals who were there was basically impossible. We couldn't get somebody to help us. When we finally did establish communication with staff members, they were rude. And I kind of walked out and my, my initial reaction was like, wow, this place needs help. <laughs> we need, uh, you know, we need to do something about, you know, having an animal shelter like this in our community because this place is really run down. It's not a great place for animals to be. And it's really hard if you go in and you're willing and ready to adopt and nobody's even there to help you do that. So I ended up investigating what it takes to become a volunteer at that shelter and started there um, as a volunteer without any inkling that this was going to be, you know, a longer research project for me. But if any of your listeners are involved in animal sheltering or animal rescue work, they may know that this activity has a way of kind of taking over your life. And the more time I spent at PAW, the more interested I became in the dynamics that I was observing there many of which really gelled with my existing interests in social inequalities and in resistance. And while I hadn't at that point done any previous work that really focused specifically on human exploitation of animals, I had become a vegetarian for the first time in junior high school, and I've always had a lot of sympathy for the cause of animal liberation. So when I was at the shelter. What I saw really for myself was an opportunity to bring together my academic and activist background in feminism and feminist methods, and then to bridge that with what I call like a longstanding, but pretty much latent commitment to challenging anthroparchy or the structure of human domination over the natural world, including animals, a word that I didn't even know at that time, you know, when I started volunteering. So it's, it's been definitely you a know, process of learning for me and sort of a new entree into the field of animal studies, but one that has been incredibly rewarding. And I'm really happy to have been able to, to work on this project and write this book.
1: You merge your background in animal studies with this non-humanities subject matter very well, but I think it's a really excellent merging of your humanities skill set with this animal-oriented or in some ways science or sociological-oriented subject matter. So it's really wonderful. I look forward to digging more into it during our discussion. Thank you. Can you give us an overview of public animal shelters, Pacific Animal Welfare Center in particular, but also animal shelters more broadly? You write that PAW, is it PAW or PAW?
2: I just say PAW, yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. You write that Paw engages in multiple conflicting activities helping animals, policing human animal relationships, and killing animals. Elsewhere, you compare these activities to the welfare state, the carceral state, and the anthroparkal state. Is that yep. right? You
2: got it right anthroparkal state. Yes.
1: <laughs> Can you help us understand the contemporary animal shelter?
2: I can certainly try. Contemporary animal shelters are really complex institutions, and there's also a lot of variation among them.
1: You can stick to PAW.
2: OK. PAW is what is considered a high intake, high kill shelter. So when I started my fieldwork there in 2013, the shelter was taking in about 20,000 live animals every year, and roughly 25% of dogs and 85% of cats who came into the shelter were killed at the shelter. That is what would be considered for 2013, a so-called high-kill shelter, especially that ratio for cats. Most shelters today are striving for live release rates of 90%, so fewer than 10% of either dogs or cats uh, being killed.
1: That's, that's actually better than I would have thought.
2: Yeah, it's what they're moving towards. It's not necessarily right. what's been achieved, but it's, it's what the, it's what the goal is in a lot of sheltering systems. It's certainly not universal. There is a lot of variation in, this, in the structure and organization of these different shelters. And a lot of what's happened in shelters like PAW is that the number of intakes and the percentages of animals who are killed, especially for dogs, and dogs in general have a much, much easier time exiting animal shelters alive than do cats, have improved over the years. So there's lower rates of intake and the percentage of animals being killed is going down. But largely in the sheltering industry, that's because of things that are happening in spite of shelters like PAW, not because of them. So it's really common that outside actors, including the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals or the ASPCA, the Humane Society of the United States, Best Friends, Maddie's Fund, There are these sort of large, wealthy actors that have foundation funds and different kinds of grant programs, and they've really been major drivers for lowering intakes rather than any kind of innovation that's actually happening in shelters themselves. I'd also add that PAW is a particularly inert shelter. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of variation in how innovative shelters and shelter managers are willing and able to be. And PAW is one that also within the sheltering industry is known as a shelter that has suffered from management issues that have made it a place where it's been really hard and slow to affect change that helps animals. And I'd say in general, since you asked about kind of the broader landscape of sheltering as well, you know, sort of a general trend, private animal shelters, which usually have in their name, a humane society. So Humane Society of this town or this town's humane society, those are generally private shelters that have contracts with cities in which they're working. And those are generally grounded more in a model of working with the community and more of a model of compassion for animals, whereas public animal agencies, which is the type that PAW is, that's an animal control agency that's funded by government, they tend to be more punitive in their orientation, and they tend to have higher kill rates as well. And some of this, of course, also just boils down to money. Private shelters tend to have very good fundraising apparatus, you know, to raise money from private donors. And a lot of public shelters have little or no donations that are coming in to change things. So as a public shelter that's really grounded in the animal control framework, this idea of protecting the public from animals, PAW really sees its core mission as one of maintaining public safety first and foremost. And then kind of secondarily, it's about helping animals and people find each other and taking care of animals during periods of temporary homelessness. And so that is where I tie into these concepts of of policing and helping and killing, because we really see a shelter like PAW as exercising a lot of different aspects of state power. It's engaging and policing human-animal relationships and impounding animals, taking them away from human guardians into its own legal custody, providing at least a minimum level of care to animals while they're impounded. They get two meals a day. They're in shelter. Unfortunately, that shelter is not temperature controlled, particularly in the summer. There's no AC and that's becoming an increasing problem. And, you know, and then ultimately the shelter also has this right to kill animals who it deems unadoptable or just surplus. So PAW is really engaged in policing and surveillance, it's engaged in reasserting human domination over animals through the caging and the killing of animals, and it tries to help animals by providing them with this basic care and supporting at least some of the animals being adopted or returning to their original guardians. So what we see in terms of variation across kind of the broader landscape of sheltering in the United States is that there are shelters, including ones geographically quite close to where PAW is located, that are much more focused on adoption and reunification and also on providing high-quality care and enrichment programs to animals while they are impounded and that have less of an emphasis or less of a concern with issues like public safety and don't really use the discourse so much around public safety as a way to control animals and people.
1: I recently talked with historian Ernest Freeberg about his recent book, A Traitor to a Species which tells the story of Henry Berg, the founder of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It's a fascinating history, and I I don't think many people know it. And you go into this a little bit in your book. So could you quickly tell us the history of animal sheltering, what the conditions were like that led to the creation of the ASPCA and the first animal shelters?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So animal sheltering started in the United States really as a way to try to manage the population of different kinds of free roaming animals. Um and as you probably now know from your conversation, Ernest Freeberg and, and reading A Trader to His Species, you know, at the time the ASPCA was founded in New York City, it's believed that there were substantially more domesticated animals roaming around the city than there were people. Cows, dogs, cats, horses. Swine, chickens, you know, different kinds of animals were in all kinds of spaces, public spaces through the city. And when animal control first came into being in the United States, it really was focused primarily on managing property disputes, so disputes over who owned or was responsible for a particular animal. And then also it was responsible for trying to manage the threat of zoonotic diseases. In regards to dogs, the particular concern was you know, illnesses like rabies and if and how, you know, populations of stray dogs would pose a risk to human populations for bites and disease transmission. So animal control in its earliest days was really about protecting humans and getting animals off the street. And when I refer and you know in our conversation today to the kind of animal control framework and the public safety discourse, this is where that starts centuries ago, in this idea that animals pose a threat to the health of human communities. It was the practice of the early dog catchers in New York City in the 1800s to load dogs and cats and other animals that they found stray into cages and just drown them in huge groups in the East River.
1: And the ASPCA, too, did that.
2: Yeah, they, they, they quite likely did. Um, you know, and the ASPCA, when they took over management of animal control in New York City, which I believe was in 1894. Part of their goal, um, in Henry Berg's work was actually focused specifically on trying to improve the quality of death for animals. So to try to develop more humane approaches to how these stray animals were being killed and also to start this framework of, of prevention of cruelty to animals, which up until that point didn't really have a lot of traction in the United States. So the early ASPCA really was a policing body. It was an agency centered on punitive approaches towards animals that were free-roaming, basically viewing certain animals in certain places as being bodies out of place and therefore needing to not only remove them, but in those cases, kill them. And this may have come up in in your conversation about Henry Berg, but the the data from the early years of the ASPCA's management in New York City in terms of the kill rate are incredibly high, I want to say 95% or higher of animals that right. that came into the care of the ASPCA ended up dead. So, you know, that that's the starting point um, for the American sheltering industry. And I think it's part of why it's been very challenging and a slow process in a lot of ways to move towards the more recent no-kill or low-kill approach because we have generation after generation of animal shelter workers and managers who are brought up in and accustomed to this culture we're killing. It's a reasonable solution, you know, and is seen as a reasonable solution to uh, to the problem of companion animal homelessness. We don't really see, you know, the number of intakes into shelters in the United States start to drop until about 1970. That's when we begin to observe increases in spaying and neutering. The first public spay/neuter clinic that offered free and low-cost services anywhere in the United States was actually right here in Los Angeles, and then shelters in the 1980s started requiring their own animals to be spayed or neutered before they were sent home into new adoptive placements. Gradually spaying and neutering became a central part of our understandings in the United States of animal welfare and also what it means to be, you know, so-called responsible guardian to, to animals. But this ideology that killing is a reasonable way to respond to unhoused companion animals, which a lot of people who work in the shelter industry really see as not even being a choice Like, it's so ingrained that they don't see it as something that they don't have to do. It's simply the way it's done. Um, We don't really see that kind of shift moving away from that thinking happening until the 1990s and even the early 2000s, when advocates for shelter reform, many of whom identify themselves through the so-called no-kill movement really start pushing animal shelters to move towards reducing shelter killing and to focus more on facilitating reunification of guardians and stray animals and also making sure that more animals are adopted. But in in the grand scheme of the history of animal sheltering, it's a relatively recent development, and it is one that thankfully has resulted in very significant decreases in the real number of animals who are being killed in in U.S. shelters. Best Friends Animal Society, I know, this year claimed that last year, 2019, was the first year in which the number of animals killed in shelters was below 1 million um, in the United States. And this is a whole separate conversation. There are a lot of issues with data from animal shelters because there really is no body that collects reliable data from every animal shelter in the country. So everything is really an estimate <laughs> when we talk about any, pretty much any statistics, you know, about the animal sheltering industry as an industry whole. But certainly, even if $1 is perhaps too generous, which a lot of critics don't think that we're really at that point yet, certainly we're moving very consistently towards reducing shelter killing.
1: An interesting paradox at the heart of the ASPCA that I discussed in my interview with Professor Freeberg Mm -hmm. is that he really had a dual motivation. One was reducing animal suffering, of course, but... The other was reducing the, the moral impact of the killing of animals on humans. And so one of the things that he pushed for a lot is moving the death away from people, moving these slaughterhouses out of the cities and away from people so that they weren't impacted by them. And of course, that, the ramifications of that continue today in the forms, the ways that we conceal these things and the ways that people don't really know what's happening in a way that they probably had a much better understanding of a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I definitely hope to ask you about that shortly, but let's, let's cut to the chase. Let's discuss the, the big matter. First shelters kill a huge number of animals each year, according to a September 2019 New York times article. And I know this number isn't the same as the ones you've just quoted, but that article said that shelters kill over 2 million animals each year. I personally am an advocate for animal rights. I'm a vegan and I oppose the unnecessary killing of animals. And if you come to view the world through that lens, it becomes difficult to fathom how the people around you don't seem troubled by these numbers. 2 million. 2 million is a huge number. Mm-hmm. If we learned that 2 million humans were being killed each year, that would that would be a staggering number. According to the Food and agriculture organization of the united nations 77 billion land animals are slaughtered for food each year in your book you describe the shelter as a quote exceptionary space and i think that's a helpful concept here for shelters but also for slaughterhouses for public lands where hunting is allowed could you talk to us a bit about that concept the exceptionary space
2: absolutely and it actually ties in very well with the comment you were making just previously about Henry Berg and his interest and commitment in moving these morally corrupting forms of violence i.e. animal slaughter and the killing of other uh, other animals outside of urban neighborhoods or into places where they wouldn't be as readily seen so confining them to to industrial areas or rural areas instead the concept of of an exceptionary space really refers to any site in which normal order is de facto suspended or a space that's kind of physically set apart from the law. Uh, Philosopher Giorgio Agamben first laid out this concept in detail in his book, State of Exception. And it's a concept that's gained traction across a number of fields and disciplines. And I, you know, that reflects how useful it is. He wasn't intending for it, as far as I'm aware, to ever be used to apply to animals. Issues, but it really it really does uh, fit. It's
1: it's one of those concepts that the second you hear it, you think, oh, I've needed that concept for a very long time, and I didn't have it.
2: Exactly, exactly. In regards to issues of animal rights and animal welfare, animal shelters are states of exception because the normal rules that govern how humans are supposed to engage with companion animals are suspended. People at home typically don't keep their cats and dogs in cages so small that they can just turn around, or if they do keep them in cages like that, like crating, for example, for dogs, people use crates for their dogs, but they don't keep them in there 24-7. Right? They are moving around. So mm-hmm. the level of care that is provided to animals in shelters is so substantially different from the level of care that animals are accustomed to or, or learn to be accustomed to in home-like settings. If we heard about people who killed their dog or their cat at home because they just didn't want that cat anymore or dog or they were moving away and they had no place for the dog or cat to go, so they just killed them. You know, people found out about that on social media today. They would be howling about what an injustice that is, both as a moral issue and they probably try to mobilize, you know, a legal case for cruelty as well. But what's immoral or unlawful outside of shelters is considered moral and lawful inside of shelters, so those, those rules about law and morality that we have in the population as a whole are suspended in a state of exception. Likewise, critical geographers especially have analyzed slaughterhouses as exceptionary spaces because there too our general moral sensibilities and our legal codes that protect animals from harm and suffering just don't apply. In fact, it's been one of the core struggles for the animal rights movement to push for laws that do, in fact, protect animals inside of these exceptionary spaces. It's been one of the areas of, of major victory, at least here in California, where I live for, for animal rights advocates is, is getting laws on the books that, that protect these animals. Um, and I think, you know, except, exceptionary spaces, they reflect our society's desire and ability to just turn away from animal suffering. People know that these spaces exist, but they don't want to hear about them because it makes them very uncomfortable. Um, I'm thinking, I can't remember if it's in the book itself or in a conversation that we had personally, but Catherine Gillespie Gillespie has written a beautiful book, um, The Cow with Ear Tag Number 1389, which is a critical examination of the dairy industry. You know, and she talks about how people find out that she's doing work in the dairy industry and like what a conversation stopper that is. Like people Mm. say, you know, all the time, <laughs> wow, that must be really troubling. Let's not talk about it. People don't want to engage. And it's that refusal to engage on the part of so many people, that ability to look away and also the setting up of our social structures that make it easy for us to look away, that, of course, is what allows these systems that kill so many animals to continue to thrive.
1: I'm impressed that those people know that dairy is problematic. When I tell people I'm vegan, that I think the common response is, you know, well, meat, sure, but dairy and eggs, what's wrong with that?
2: So you can give those people a copy of the cow with, with your tag number 1389 because it's such a powerful account of how the lives of animals in the dairy industry are, are so troubling.
1: So there is a second related concept in your book, which is Judith Butler's concept of ungrievable lives. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, Judith Butler, among others, has discussed how society renders some lives as ungrievable, so lives that cannot be publicly recognized as lives that warrant being mourned for. In Butler's analysis, ungrievable lives can't be grieved for because they've never really lived at all. They're not grievable because the life itself, when it existed, wasn't seen as an important or valuable part of our society. And so that ungrievability is really deeply political. Some lives are denied grievability to deny suffering and harm perpetrated against them, and to deny even the original existence of certain people. And Butler developed the concept and talks about it, particularly in the context of U.S. wars in the Middle East. And scholars following in her direction have also talked in more detail about how one major implication of an ungrievable life is that it renders not just the deceased person socially unintelligible, but also the mourner, the person who wants to mourn and grieve for someone who's considered ungrievable. They lose some of their own social intelligibility as well when a life is is denied as grievable. I think right now the COVID-19 pandemic actually provides an interesting example of ungrievability As we know, unfortunately, well over 200,000 Americans at this point have died from COVID-19, but we've had no acts of national mourning. If we think about this in contrast to like nine, the attacks on 9-11, where only a few thousand people were killed and the amount of national mourning that was dedicated to that event, both at the time that it happened, but also in the years that have followed, you know, it's, it's night and day, um, kind of comparison. And many other countries around the world already have memorials for COVID-19 victims and different kinds of public or government acknowledgement of those victims. But we don't have that at all here because our government doesn't want us to be paying attention right now to those lives. They want to treat those lives as ungrievable. I think the Black Lives Matter movement also has been addressing and asserting issues around grievability. By asking us to say the names of Black people the police have killed, you know, is an important way to assert that the lives of those people mattered, that those lives are, are grievable.
1: And to take a knee in recognition.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And resistance is a, is a common response to ungrievability. And in the shelter context, um, women volunteers are always navigating close, although often conflictual relationships with staff. So they have to stay or they try to stay within the bounds of what the shelter will tolerate in terms of their challenges to the shelter's demands that nobody grieve the animals who are killed there. But they're also kind of constantly pushing up against that level of tolerance and testing it. One of the challenges for volunteers at PAW is that PAW does occasionally, as a tactic of repression against volunteers, fire people from volunteering. It's always kind of a running joke, even among volunteers, like how can you be fired from a volunteer position? Um, But over the years, you know, they intermittently ask people who they see as kind of making the wrong kind of trouble for them um, to leave and to not come back, that they're no longer, they're no longer welcome um, to volunteer. So it's interesting, um, you know, as an observer and an analyst to watch how volunteers try to negotiate struggling against but at the same time trying to maintain their volunteer status and their good standing there. And volunteers at, at PAW really actively resist the ungrievability of shelter animal lives. It's mostly women who volunteer there, and they engage in individual and collective rituals of grief that refuse the shelter's insistence that dead animals can't be grieved or aren't, aren't grievable. And this is really important because we tend to think about grief as a passive or useless emotion. I think in part because mourning is associated in our society with being a feminine activity. So the women volunteers are really working within this masculinist and anthropocentric bureaucracy, one that's devaluing the significance of their daily and really important to them relationships with impounded animals, and it's also devaluing the lives of animals um, altogether. And so these women resist that by talking about the killed animals together, they remember them, many of them light candles or incense for them, and perhaps most importantly in terms of a, a social act, they keep them alive in stories that they tell about animals who've been killed across months or sometimes even years. Um and this really helps restore the social intelligibility of the animals and of the volunteers who knew and cared for and who loved these animals. They're Acts of mourning really demand that other people, people outside of the shelter, especially on social media, and social media plays a big part kind of in the politics of animal sheltering on on the volunteer and animal rescue side, demanding that these other people via social media really pay attention to killing in the shelter. And so these acts challenge the shelter's insistence that shelter animal lives are ungrievable lives, and they're therefore also undermining the shelter's position. That killing animals is in fact a reasonable response to the problem of unhoused animals. If we were to acknowledge that shelter animals lives can be grieved, it would be so much more difficult for shelters to continue killing them at high rates or at any rate potentially. So this, this resistance to ungrievability has significant implications for if and how the shelter's practices of killing continue at all um and continue to be accepted by our our society more broadly. You
1: give a, a fascinating example in your book that touches on both the exceptionary space and ungrievable lives. I can't re- I believe it's a dog and I believe that you give the dog's name, but one of the volunteers, I believe, takes home a dog, and you just you kind of analyze the way in which the dog's standing among everyone was transformed by that act alone when it had previously mm-hmm. been in The shelter, it it was one type of animal, one type of creature. And then when it left the shelter and was moved into a human home, it was transformed into into a creature that had a different standing.
2: Absolutely. The value of companion animals for us as humans hinges entirely on whether or not they're connected to a particular human guardian. So a companion animal inside of a shelter lives an ungrievable life. But when you are a white middle-class person with kind of the Behaviors around caring for animals that's associated with that. And you have an animal in your care who dies. That is a, you know, an occasion to send somebody a, a condolence card to call them up and say how sorry you are that their dog or cat died, you know, to offer caring and to acknowledge the significance of the loss that they're experiencing. And it was repeatedly interesting. And I recall the example you're talking about in the shelter, how when shelter volunteers would take home animals, usually to foster, you know, an animal that inside of the shelter had no value as soon as they are outside of the shelter, even if in some cases like that, one, they died within a day of being outside of the shelter, that suddenly becomes an animal whose life is grievable, because that animal, at least for that short time, was actually a companion animal, you know, carrying out its its human-centered mission.
1: It makes for an illuminating case study. Concealment is very important in the shelter industry, even to the point where shelter volunteers, as you note, are forbidden from talking with staff about shelter death. But it goes beyond that. While volunteers and the public may visit certain approved parts of the shelter during certain windows, the euthanasia room is closed to both the public and to volunteers. And it's during the 17 hours each day when the shelter is closed that the staff engage in the activities they prefer to conceal. Can you talk to us a bit about the logic of concealment and visibility within shelters?
2: Yeah, as a whole, shelters are more like zoos in terms of visibility than like laboratories that use animals for testing or slaughterhouses, which we were also talking about. Which is to say that public access is actually central to the organization of contemporary animal shelters, just as it is to the organization of zoos, right? Having visitors, having people come in is part of what their actual work involves. On the other hand, keeping people out is what's really central in labs and slaughterhouses. And now we even have a whole set of ag gag laws and so forth that make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for members of the public to disappear and say, hey, I would like to have a look today you know, around your feedlot or around your slaughterhouse. But like zoos, shelters also engage in activities that trouble the public and like slaughterhouses, most especially that practice of killing. So that work has to happen when the public won't see it and in physical spaces where the public isn't gonna see traces that it's been happening either. Um, And you mentioned the euthanasia room, we call it shorthand, of just the youth room at the shelter. And that's a, a small room that is in the center of a locked building. So you have to get through multiple sets of locked doorways to actually get into that physical space. And the killing of the animals only happens in the youth room during the hours when the shelter is closed to the public. It is possible for volunteers to be there um, when killing is happening, but, but, uh, the members of the public would not be there. You know, and, and critiquing Issues of visibility, because this comes up a lot in critical animal studies, writing about zoos, about slaughterhouses. I think different expectations apply for different kinds of settings. So I don't think necessarily that all parts of the shelter should be visible to all people all the time. In fact, in the book, I talk about how the time without the public, so when the shelter is closed to the public, is a really important time of relief and de-stressing for the animals. It's really important in a, yeah, in a absolutely. shelter, you know, where animals can be watched at all times and pause kennels are typical of shelter kennels where people can look in from either end. So there's, there's really no privacy when it's open to the public. For better or for worse, people come into the shelter and they may mean well. Um, but a lot of people stress out the animals when they lean down and try to talk to them or when they reach their fingers in and try to pet them. So the animals really need this time, you know, without the public peering in and aggravating them and troubling them um, in different ways. And as a volunteer, I can say from personal experience that the shelter is blissfully quiet um and even peaceful when it's closed to the public because the animals are so much more relaxed during those times. It's also, of course, this time of elevated risk um, for animals, both risk of being taken to the youth room and killed without anyone there to intervene. And especially when I first started volunteering, the shelter kind of did away with this practice. They would often do that killing in the mornings when volunteers were already allowed to be there, but where the shelter was closed to the public. And that actually resulted in a number of sort of last-minute rescues where volunteers practically threw themselves onto animals who were being taken into the youth room and begged the staff to put them back in their kennels to try to give them one more day to, to get out of the shelter. Now the shelter does it at a time where volunteers typically aren't aren't going to be there um, either. The other thing that can happen when no one is around to see it is that animals can be treated poorly by staff. And luckily at PAW, I'm not aware of any serious concrete instances, but PAW is part of a multi-shelter system, like part of one umbrella shelter system. And I know at some of the, the sibling shelters that there were instances people being uh, terminated or even prosecuted for abusing animals after hours. You know, and of course, bringing visibility to those activities, increased visibility would likely result in calls to reduce or eliminate uh, how some of the staff interact with the animals and also euthanasia in particular. And I know just by way of one is the example that in his analysis of slaughterhouses, Timothy Pascherat makes the case for glass abattoirs. So the idea that we should actually have our slaughterhouses totally visible so that people can visit them and see exactly how animals are being killed. For companion animals, especially at this moment, I think we have other solutions, including among them just not killing animals. For most animal shelters, there's no longer a a need or a reason to do that. Most animal shelters have the resources available to make sure that all of their animals are placed. Um, And also, we're seeing an increased move towards deinstitutionalizing animal shelters so that animals, instead of being in cages at the shelter... Either stay with their original guardians for as long as possible while seeking out an alternate home for them, or they're in foster homes instead of being in the shelter at all. I think either of those options or both of those options together for the case of, of animal shelters makes more sense than trying to increase visibility.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: You devote an entire chapter to the myth of the irresponsible owner. It, it's an incredible chapter. It's really just immensely illuminating. Could you briefly tell us the story of Digby, who you used to illustrate the reality of how companion animals may end up in shelters, and then talk to us about the myth of the irresponsible owner?
2: Digby. Digby was a pit bull who came into PAW during my second year there as a volunteer. He entered the shelter with a pretty bad case of demodex mange, a skin condition of mite overgrowth. That looks pretty terrible. The dogs basically who have it tend to lose all of their fur and have red, inflamed, often pussy, swollen skin. It's actually pretty easy and inexpensive to treat, but needless to say, most people who come to an animal shelter and see a dog who looks like that, especially when it's already an adult pit bull, you know, are not going to jump on the chance to adopt that particular animal. And I met Digby at the shelter and I spent time with him at the shelter and also at an offsite adoption event. And I talked to my partner about it and we decided to offer to foster him for a local rescue organization, which meant that he would come and live with us until he was healthy enough to be made available for adoption after he got better from from the mains. And we brought Digby home and I fostered at this point dozens and dozens and dozens of dogs. And he's one that is always particularly near and dear to my heart, both because of how his story ends, but also that the time we had with him was just incredibly special. It was like a love connection. If you could have, you know, a cartoon where hearts are popping off of people's heads, that's what it felt like when we brought Digby into the house. We had two permanent resident dogs at that time and he saw them and they saw him and all of them just went into this happy, playful body posture. They just got along perfectly. Our cat came wandering into the kitchen and we're always, of course, very cautious introducing new dogs and cats and his tail just loped around in a circle and he was so happy and was consistently fantastic with our cats. So he just, you know, he just fit in. He was like almost like a missing piece and we just loved having him. And he was with us for about, about four months when Quite unexpectedly, he died in our care. And his death was, it was really an event that left me, you know, heartbroken on an emotional level, but also feeling very much like I'd made wrong choices, bad choices for him about his veterinary care. It was one of those situations where you go back in time, you know, it was just a matter of a couple of days during which, you know, the trigger for his death happened and then he died and you think, oh, if I had noticed this then, or if I'd taken him to this veterinary hospital instead of that veterinary hospital, or if we had tried this treatment approach instead of that treatment approach, you know, we just go over everything and everything comes back to you feeling like, wow, I screwed this up. And now this precious animal who I loved and who I was so excited to see have a new life with a, you know, a permanent family is over. And I'm someone who's always considered myself pretty much a model guardian for companion animals. I've lived with dogs since the moment I was born. I'm responsible. I'm careful. I'm compassionate. I'm smart. You know, I fit like the demographic profile of being a good dog owner. I'm a white person. I'm a woman. I'm highly educated. I'm financially stable. And, you know, to think these deaths and ways that really surprised me just destabilized my ideas of myself as someone who makes good choices on behalf of companion animals who are, you know, in my care. And it was a full year later actually that um I was really surprised when I received a message from someone who identified themselves as Digby's former guardian. He was a name a man named um Alvado, and he told me in his very first message about his life with Digby and how he bought Digby from a family friend as a puppy. And he sent me a whole lot of pictures of Digby from various life stages, and he also sent me copies of his vet records from all of this information from the way Digby looked in the pictures, because I knew his body language, I knew his face. You know, I could see this was a dog who'd been really well cared for and who was very much loved. But Alvado had a really unexpected emergency, and he had to leave Digby in the care of his family while he was away. And it was during that time that Digby got out of the yard, and he eventually ended up at PAW. And he'd already been in treatment for the mange with Alvado, and Alvado had been able to successfully manage mange, which for some pit bulls, for unknown reasons, is kind of a persistent problem. But either in the time that he was with the family and or the time he was on the street, it was enough time for it to really flourish again so that he looked really bad by the time he got to the shelter. And Alvado's story of losing Digby, you know, really drives home for me one of the major arguments I make in the book which is that one of the dominant explanations that workers and volunteers and rescuers in the shelter industry make, and also that the general public makes, about why animals come into shelters is wrong. And not only is it wrong, but it's wrong in ways that reflect really problematic assumptions about race, class, and gender. So what I call the myth of the irresponsible owner holds that many, if not most companion animals who end up in shelters come in there because of the problematic behaviors of their guardians, or what some people also refer to as owners. Um, those behaviors include everything from keeping dogs outside more than inside to not sterilizing animals. In turn, are seen also as reflecting a set of personal characteristics, things like being irresponsible, hence irresponsible owners, not being accountable, being lazy, being cheap, having, having a, inadequate compassion, always looking for the easy way out of problematic situations. And it's a set of characteristics that in the United States, we associate predominantly with poor people and with people who receive different types of state aid or welfare aid. And so the myth of irresponsible owners is really tied to ideas about race, class, and gender, because the image of the irresponsible owner as it circulates in shelters like PAW and in the rescue community is always an image of a Latinx or Black lower-class man, specifically. And it's really not an overstatement to describe the rescue community the people who rescue animals from shelters um, into private organizations to rehome them. But the rescue community in particular is really obsessed with irresponsible owners as kind of the fall guys for homelessness among companion animals. But what I found in my research is that irresponsible owners are not behind the vast majority of impounds at PAW at all. The people who I met who brought their animals into PAW or who abandoned their animals elsewhere, or in some cases who PAW coerced into giving up their animals, were overwhelmingly doing that as a very last resort. They were people who had already tried and exhausted every other avenue they could think of to rehome their animals if they couldn't keep them for some reason. And they live lives of extreme precarity dealing with problems like poverty, over-policing, loss of housing, coupled with Los Angeles's incredibly and outrageously expensive housing market, and one that's also generally quite hostile to companion animals in rental houses, especially pit bulls, um, and issues like imprisonment and deportation. All problems that make it genuinely challenging for these people to maintain continuous relationships with anyone, human or animal, And this discourse of irresponsible owners has really problematic consequences in that it obscures the real structural reasons why animals come into shelters in such high numbers from lower income communities in particular. And it allows shelter workers to deflect responsibility for the killing of animals from the shelter itself and even from our broader society, which, as we've been talking about, functionally condones this killing. And it makes the individual animal guardians responsible for the death of their own animals within this state institution. So that's one problematic consequence of this discourse. It also, this discourse also reinforces misguided interventions because a lot of the efforts at kind of changing human relationships with animals to reduce shelter intakes are a dog pun, I guess, barking up the wrong tree. (laughs) And the discourse of irresponsible owners really reinforces racist, classist, and gendered ideas about low-income men of color in particular, who again are the dominant group represented among those people who are defined as irresponsible owners, and who are seen as problematic people through this discourse who aren't morally fit to care for animals, and thus that justifies continuing to treat them as marginalized people, you know, in our society more broadly.
1: So you've just touched on issues of class and race outside of the shelter, but we can also look at the inside of the shelter through that lens. You note that shelter volunteers differ from staff in terms of their demographic background, for example, and you show how this manifests in the differing positions each play in shelter and how, because of those backgrounds, power dynamics are not necessarily what you would expect with paid staff having unquestioned power over volunteers within the shelter community there are volunteers who in some ways have differing types of power to staff and one of the interesting things your book does is it analyzes the the power dynamics within the shelter. Could you talk to us a little bit about this the play of class and race within the shelter within the staff and the volunteers
2: mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, PAW is really such a fascinating microcosm of society. And there's so many different aspects of what happens at PAW um, that really reflect and reinforce broader issues um, in our society. And part of what I wanted to do in the book um, in thinking about volunteer resistance was also to challenge some of the dominant discourses currently present, both in scholarly literature, but also in the world at large, about volunteerism itself. There's a pretty large literature on volunteerism. It's kind of its own field of study, you know, that focuses on questions like why do people volunteer and what motivates people to volunteer and what benefits does volunteering have for democratic societies and so forth. And in most of our popular ideas about volunteerism, as well as in a lot of that scholarly literature, volunteers are thought of as people who contribute their time and energy to an organization or an institution specifically because they support the work of the, and the mission of that organization or institution. And that's not at all the case at PAW. Um, Most people, in fact, are like me. They come into the shelter and they see that it's kind of a horrible place and they want to volunteer there specifically because they don't think that PAW is doing a very good job of, you know, caring for the animals there. So most volunteers don't support how PAW carries it, uh, carries out, excuse me, its work. You know, and they're really there instead to try to serve as a buffer between the shelter and the animals who are impounded at the shelter. And then we have this whole issue, as you mentioned, of the uh, inequalities that exist between the the volunteers and the workers that complicates as well uh, the kinds of negotiations that go on as volunteers try to resist how the shelter deals with animals and especially the practice of killing volunteers at the shelter overwhelmingly white women. There's a small number of Asian, Latinx, Black women. In the time that I volunteered at the shelter, there were four men who volunteered on any kind of continuous basis and literally dozens and dozens of women who did so. So I mean, it's very profoundly gender skewed. It's almost entirely women. And most of those women also have completed college or often like many degrees well beyond college. We have lawyers, PhDs, MBAs. Social workers, um, a lot of them are people who have a good deal of work flexibility. Some of them come from very long distances in, you know, Los Angeles's traffic, which can be a nightmare from the so-called West Side, which is generally a more affluent part of the city to the East Side where Paw is located, which is a lower income part of the city. Um, And they also bring with them ideas about how companion animals should be treated, and specifically the volunteers are are folks who see companion animals as being like family members. The staff, in contrast, are almost entirely Latinx. There's a, a handful of white, black, and Asian workers. Most of them have completed only high school, or in some cases, community college. They generally come from and live in the working class communities of color that are surrounding the shelter itself and where most of the intakes into the shelter itself um, happen. And they're also much more mixed gender. And the staff are really generally following protocols established by shelter management, kind of irrespective of their own personal views of how animals are supposed to be taken care of at the shelter you know, the idea is to not think about animals as individuals, but instead to see them as part of a population, each individual animal is part of a population. And it's the population that needs to be cared for and um, and managed. So what we end up with in the shelter is this dynamic in which lower income workers of color have the ultimate control over decisions about animals, including these life and death decisions. And then we have these higher income white women volunteers who are advocating to the to the staff to make different decisions about the animals and what the staff, you know, intended to do. Volunteers in that interaction routinely assert the value of their knowledge systems and also the value of their social status from outside of the shelter to negotiate for more time for animals or for some kind of change in the plan of action for uh, for a particular animal. And in the book, I talk about a lot of different specific strategies volunteers use to negotiate on behalf of animals. This is one example. Volunteers use their knowledge of animals from outside the shelter to challenge practices that they see inside of the shelter. Paw especially often uses health as a justification to kill an animal, like if a cat or a dog develops a respiratory infection, which is really common at uh, you know high uh, intake public shelters. But the the shelter staff are actually really limited in their abilities to make diagnoses and certainly to make prognoses. The staff who are veterinary are mostly RVTs. There's one veterinarian, but they're not there all the time, and they don't. They're primarily involved in staying and neutering, and less in uh, monitoring the health of, you know, the animals who are actually impounded. The shelter doesn't have any equipment to do things like blood work or X-rays, so really they're limited to basically doing a physical exam. And that means that there's actually a lot of room to kind of debate and evaluate and disagree about the meanings of symptoms. And so I'd often see and often participated myself in interactions with registered veterinary technicians or RVTs, you know, where we volunteers would assert, you know, what we had observed in a particular animal, that they were eating, that they were moving around, that they were breathing well in contrast or against an argument being made by an R V T that they should be put to sleep because they were having difficulty breathing or they were showing signs that their condition, you know, was was deteriorating. And we certainly weren't always successful. There are so many, so many instances, you know, where where volunteers didn't succeed. But what was notable to me was always also the ways in which the particularly the race um, and, and class and gender of volunteers and staff laid out in those interactions and how resentments, I think, also about those differences, particularly on the part of staff towards these white, wealthy women, who are they to come in here and tell me how to do my job, you know, was kind of an, an intrinsic response that I observed a lot on the part of staff members that made them particularly defensive in working with the volunteers at the shelter. And the volunteer's end game really is just to challenge and destabilize pause practice of killing animals who the staff think are unadoptable or surplus. But that really means that they enter into a lot of these conflicts with staff about the lives and deaths of the animals. And these conflicts, again, are always lined with deeper meanings having to do with inequalities of and also resentments around the race, class, and gender differences of the different groups of people coming into contact in the shelter.
1: Could you talk to us briefly about animal resistance and the shelter's response of pathologizing it? I I found this to be an absolutely incredible chapter. I'm an animal rights person and I had never quite conceived of it in these terms, but it's once it, once it is explained to you, it is so obvious that that is the case. Animal resistance. What is it? What does it look like within a shelter? And how does the shelter respond to that by pathologizing it?
2: Yeah, this chapter was my favorite chapter to work on. And I'm really hoping as well that it will be springboard to further work as well. Um, and in the chapter, what I'm really trying to do is challenge the idea that animals don't engage in deliberate resistance. You know, the dominant view we have in our society of what animals do is a behavioral view, that animals develop basically conditioned responses to specific stimuli. And I'm really working in this chapter to move away from behavioralism and also to identify specific ways in which humans use speciesist beliefs to maintain the idea that animals can't think through options and act on them to resist, you know, human power over their lives. So I'm really laying out in the chapter the many ways that I observed animals at PAW engaging in strategies of resistance through the conditions of their confinement and through the actions of people, you know, that they encountered at Paw, both staff and volunteers and sometimes also members of the public. And this is really about, you know, documenting animal actions that, you know, other people see in the shelter environment but interpreting them through a different lens. So instead of looking at them as a behavioral expression, looking at them instead as a, an animal indicating to us what it wants. And I really wanted to sort of as a starting point draw on, um, and I apologize that I'm failing to remember who the original person is who made this claim. It's a quote I read, but of somebody else in another book that, that we don't, it's not that animals are voiceless. It's that we, as they're often talked about also in animal rescue communities, is that we don't want to hear them, um, that we try to turn away from them. And so in this chapter, more so than in any other, I really wanted to engage in trying to witness the experience of shelter animals and to try to think about their behavior not just through a lens of kind of a behavioral reaction to a specific set of stimuli in the shelter, but instead to conceptualize it as a way to resist what was happening to them um, in the shelter.
1: Just to give a quick, a quick example for the listener, uh, a dog is taken off. Taken away from its owner, put in a cage, and when a staff member approaches it, it growls at mm-hmm. them. E- even you know when I'm when I'm not thinking critically. I, even even I, I think I'm, I'm just part of this indoctrination. The general perception is that this is an ill-tempered animal, possibly not safe to be around humans. Already gets moved right onto that list of where we probably may have to get rid of this one. When in fact being taken away from your owner, put into a, a frightening place, surrounded by dogs that themselves are scared, and a stranger approaching you, it, it seems a very natural and, in fact, healthy response to, to growl and to attempt to keep this person away from you. So that's just one example of the ways in which the gut instinct or this or the institutionalized process is to label this as a pathological or or an ill-tempered animal, whereas, in fact, what we're actually witnessing is the animal expressing a preference and a fear and a, and a justified fear to a situation, and we simply choose not to acknowledge that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And what I really wanted to enter in this chapter is acknowledgement of how impounded animals refuse, you know, aspects of the conditions of their confinement and sometimes also reject human expectations of them to be docile, you know, and, and cooperative animals, you know, as you were just saying, you know, animals engage in the shelter and all kinds of disruptive actions that make it harder for the staff to do their jobs, you know, that, that basically make different kinds of trouble. and I, I don't believe that that is all inherently instinctual behavior, nor uh, behavior in response to the stimuli, but rather that that animals are actually engaging in and thinking about you know strategies of of resistance, and as you mentioned, you know the the general response to this kind of resistance on the part of animals, you know, we see police and the government responding in the same way to, to humans who engage in resistance is to pathologize it. And the shelter environment, you know, staff generally label dogs and cats who engage. Well, I should say dogs for for dogs they label them as either aggressive or suffering from psychosis, and for cats, if cats display any kind of resistance to human handling they're labeled as feral and that's really problematic for the cats at paw because paw has no um, so-called trap neuter release programs if animals are brought in and they're identified as being feral they're also sometimes called community cats now those cats automatically are not made available for adoption and they're um, they're they're killed at the moment of their uh, first legal eligibility to be killed so the feral cats it's part of why the rates of killing are so high. As I said, when I started, it was about 85% of the cats were being killed at the shelter. And the vast majority of those were cats who were identified, probably often incorrectly as feral cats. I know from my own personal companion animal cats, if they go to the vet in a carrier and we take them out, two out of the three of them will hiss at the vet. Um, but, <laughs> but at the shelter, that's the basis, you know, an instant evaluation, um, that cat's feral, that cat will be killed. Um, and because they handle so many animals and their logic is we have to kill, you know, a certain percentage to manage our overall population. There isn't time or energy put into going back to a cat and saying, well, what happens with this cat if I play with a feather toy? Or what happens with this cat if I, you know, put them in a room with me and I just sit on the floor and ignore them for half an hour? There's no time or space in which that can happen, you know, in a, in a high intake shelter. You know, with the dogs, they think about aggression as really being a fixed characteristic, something that can't be changed about an animal. So that also makes them unsafe for adoption and aggressive dogs are killed. And then psychosis is kind of an interesting bundle of contradictions because psychosis is by definition, context specific. It refers to animals who develop stress related symptoms because they are in a confined environment. So it is the shelter, right, that is causing them to go crazy. Um, that's what psychosis is. So the logic to me and maybe to many others listening is that if animals have psychosis, the way to treat the psychosis is to get that animal out of the shelter. What happens instead at Paw is that the staff view them more as having sort of an inherent weakness or of character that results in them developing psychosis in the first place. Like only the animals who maybe were passing, uh, you know, as docile and cooperative companion animals in their previous homes, you know, in this, environment or revealing their true selves. And now we really can't trust them, you know, to be placed in, uh, in a home again. Um, in some cases, too, the animals with psychosis are just understood by the staff as suffering and they use the language of humane euthanasia to talk about putting down animals with psychosis because they, they think it's less stressful for them to be dead, uh, than it is to, uh, to continue to experience psychosis while waiting for someone to adopt or rescue them. So it's kind of a sad irony that for animals to engage in resistance, they may be making a noble effort, but it's an effort that almost always costs them their lives.
1: It would seem almost patently obvious that it would be an unusual case. I, I don't mean there would be anything wrong with them, but the the exceptional case would be the one that didn't respond <laughs> strongly to being put in in a in a shelter, you would almost ask, you know, there's something different about this animal that it is so calm. <laughs> the natural response would seem to me to, to be to be, you know, fearful and uh, self defensive.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think most most animals going into that situation, you know, the the exception animals are often animals who've been living as strays for a long amount of time um my my own my own dog, who's a so-called foster fail is a is a good example of that. I first met him at the shelter, and he was also a dog with a very, very severe case of mange. and it was also emaciated. And the first time I met him, a shelter manager took me into the medical area, which is sort of behind locked doors as well, asked me specifically if I would foster him because she knew I'd worked with a lot of mangy pit bulls in the past. And, um, they had taken him, uh, his name is Monkey now, and they'd taken him and they'd seated him in the wheelbarrow that they put all of the dog kibble in when they go through and feed the dogs. Mm-hmm. And I have this puppy, you know, who, who was emaciated, who's suddenly sitting in this wheelbarrow that's filled with kibble. And I mean, the look on this dog's face was like sheer joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he couldn't have been happier. And we often said that as volunteers, like you could tell which dogs came in as strays and which dogs come in as owner surrenders because the strays are happy to be at the shelter and the owner surrenders are horrified.
1: Right. It's, it's, it's still as fascinating though, because if you think about the, the portrayal in the media, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with concrete examples, but if you think about a John Wayne movie or a Sergio Leone movie or a Jason Bourne movie, if you put one of these heroes behind bars, you know, inappropriately, um, they're going to be shaking the cage. They're going to be screaming. They're going to be acting out <laughs> at this unjust condition that they're in. And the audience would be cheering them on. But when you, when you switch the species and it becomes a dog we, without even thinking, we just, we just switch over into this mode where bad, bad animal, bad mm-hmm. animal. You end your book by presenting a utopian vision of a system we could if we chose to implement. Just as animal shelters were invented by welfare advocates of the 19th century to improve the lives and fates of animals for their time, so we could invent our own system for the 21st century to further their work of improving the lives of animals. Could you tell us a bit about what this utopia could look like were we to prioritize moving in that direction?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Generally, a big believer in imagining other worlds, however out of reach they might feel in in this particular moment. And I always think it's critically important for us to remember that other worlds are possible. There's different ways of organizing our society at all levels than how we're doing it right now. And I think especially in the animal sheltering industry, where the leaders within public shelters have consistently shown a lack of imagination. it's all the more important to talk about you know alternative futures and what what might be possible if we you know radically changed our organization of, of sheltering activities
1: And by by imagining different alternatives it, it helps us to put into perspective what we take for granted and what we assume to be you know the God-given way the world is in fact, is just one option among many.
2: Exactly, and that's exactly why it's so important. It just helps us rethink and and kind of destabilize many of our our core assumptions. You know, in in the book, I propose a utopia that radically shifts our current practices of treating companion animals as private property and as valueless, basically, unless they're owned by a specific human guardian, to instead have a vision of a world in which companion animals select their own guardians, where they move between households at will, where it's up to them to choose which house they're going to sleep in, you know, on a given evening or where they're going to get a meal on a particular day, and where they receive compassionate care, not just from one human guardian, but from a range of humans, and also who live in a physical space that reduces or even eliminates risks to animals moving about by changing our transportation systems entirely. Um, you know, it's a common argument that I hear at PAW about why stray animals are safer at the shelter is because if they're not at the shelter, they're going to get hit by cars. And of course, in our current, especially here in LA, you know, car-centric culture, that risk is real. I, I understand it. Um, but if we lived in, in a society in which cars weren't our primary mode of transportation, but where we organized bridges and tunnels in different ways so that animals and people could cohabit with everyone free roaming, we wouldn't need to impound animals, um, that were roaming around freely. So I think in a, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the general utopia that I'm envisioning is actually very similar to the kind of village dog life that animals in many parts of the global south are already living. Um, you know, where there might be a set of people that kind of watch out for them and feed them and take care of them, but where they don't really belong to any specific individual. You know, the notable difference in, in my vision would that there would be a, a guarantee of receiving basic level of care, which is often not the case for the village dogs and, you know, in poor countries, that so they would be getting vaccinations, they would be, at least there would be conversations. I don't know if it would be necessarily mandatory, but there would be conversations about spaying and neutering certain certain animals at certain life stages, um, and where they would, you know, have a guaranteed source of food and of any kind of emergency veterinary care arising. And so I map out, you know, in, in the early chapter the early pages, excuse me, of the final chapter, you know, what this what this could look like just to get us to think about some of the different possibilities for our relationships with companion animals as a group. Um, not just our relationships with companion animals, you know, in our own homes. And I think for most people who consider themselves companion animal lovers, that's kind of where their concern for companion animals starts and ends. It's the animals that they see as theirs. Um, but if we move away from this private property model, we'd have a much greater sense of social responsibility for all animals, and I think it would also really open up possibilities for humans to experience animal love in ways that we haven't been able to um, because of this uh, property relationship.
1: I'll just note for the listener that when, when Henry Berg founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, I think that it was in about 1865, somewhere around that, he was absolutely laughed out of the room. Every newspaper in New York and across the country really thought it was thought it was hysterical. And with time, he he changed my hearts and minds. Even at the time, one of the things that I found very interesting to learn was that very few cats and dogs actually lived within the home, even if they were pets of someone or even if they had a guardian. They rarely lived within the home because flea and ticks and that stuff. We just didn't have the medicine and the technology at that time to keep that under check. So most pets lived outdoors. And it would have been inconceivable at the time to imagine the world that we're living in today. And just in just that same way, I think it's possible in the next 20 or 50 years, or hopefully fewer, we could see a similar transformation that seems inconceivable today, but that is in fact possible if we prioritize it, if we decide that we care. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Katia, thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
2: Yeah, I mean, from this shelter project, I actually have a lot of information I haven't used. Um, the book, for example, draws entirely on ethnographic field work, but I also actually did do interviews with adopters and people who encountered shelter dogs in environments outside of a shelter and so I'm actually planning, I haven't started it yet, but to actually start working on analyzing more of those interviews and to be writing specifically on some of the issues involved in creating histories and narrative histories of poor shelter animals, um, which is something that that human guardians uh, tend to do and to try to explore as well some of these ideas, um, you know, about social inequalities through the kinds of narrative histories that, uh, that adopters craft about their adopted um, animals and their origin stories. I've also recently submitted a paper for peer review that, that looks specifically at how shelter volunteers and animal rescuers who, um, again, are at PAW, um, simultaneously resist the devaluation of dogs who are identified as being disabled, while at the same time also sensationalizing and fetishizing disability through different kinds of discursive and representational practices, particularly on their social media like Instagram and, and Facebook. There's some interesting ways in which animal rescue is also tied up in practices of ableism. So that paper really hones in on those, on those dynamics. And then there, there's also a, a growing um, body of work out there on it already, but I'm also in the early stages of a new project looking at the animal save movement with sensors on witnessing the lives of farm animals at the specific moment when transporters, people, truck drivers, um, bring the animals into slaughterhouses. And I'm really particularly interested in doing some comparative work because I already now have all of this rich information about how shelter volunteers witness and experience the death of companion animals in a shelter environment that they know. And I'd like to do some comparative work between that information and exploring some of the practices and ideas about witnessing that are undertaken by individuals who are involved in the animal save movement, where they're generally only interacting with animals very briefly prior to their death, but where they also, I think, have a a different and perhaps even more complex um, set of rituals, social rituals around how they negotiate that moment of witnessing an interaction prior to the animals being driven into, you know, the slaughtering, um, slaughtering facilities.
1: It's one of those on the frontier or on the edge of the exceptionary space where (laughs) we're able to have some type of encounter. Um, there's a a bunch of the celebrity, the celebrity animal rights people, Joaquin Phoenix.
2: Yes, exactly. I was going to say Joaquin Phoenix is the person who's made animals save, you know, somewhat known publicly he's
1: doing wonderful work the also the guy i i, I think his last name is cromwell he's the he's the the, the male farmer in babe yes
2: in babe so yeah a,
1: an activist
2: that's right yeah and here here in la in, in any case um at least pre-covid you know a lot of the, the actual witnessing events stopped during the height of the covid pandemic i know they've recently resumed doing them here but on a on a smaller scale and with sort of more crowds Limitations, you know, for for public health reasons. But pre-COVID, I know it was quite common for you know various uh, various celebrities to make an appearance at the Animal Save events.
1: Well, that sounds like a great project. Um, Obviously, it's getting it's getting a lot of attention. It's I would almost say it's kind of on the on the vanguard of the uh, the activist and the social the social component of that. Mm -hmm. I guess because you're able to get right up there next to the animals, which is such a such a rare thing to be able to do.
2: Right. Absolutely. Professor Gunther,
1: your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you.
2: Thank you again for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak with all of you.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Katia Gunther about her book, The Lives and Deaths of Shelter Animals. It's an erudite work, a compassionate and fascinating work, and an important one. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode and for all my episodes is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies special series